Welcome to the Aspen UK podcast, where we bring people together to discuss topics that matter. The Critical Climate Conversations podcast series is a partnership between Credit Suisse and the Aspen Institute UK. Hello and welcome to this Aspen UK webinar where we're keen to spend the next hour reflecting what we can do professionally and personally to contribute to the fight against climate change. Today's conversation is part of our Critical Climate Conversation co-hosted by Credit Suisse. I'm Penny Richards, I'm the head of the Aspen Institute in the UK. We celebrate the joy of debate, the joy of discussion and disagreement while mulling over some of the most intractable problems of our time. We also enjoy our global convening might to bring together some of the most significant thinkers of our time. And as you can see, today is absolutely no exception. Globally, just 100 companies produce over 70% of emissions. So we know the role played by our industry leaders is truly critical. And we know they can guide transformation and reinvent norms, and we can't do it without them, which is why we are so glad to have Anas, Catherine, Smatter, and Paul to guide us through this complex subject and no better person than Tom Heap to guide them. Before I introduce you to Tom and his panelists, a quick word about today. They will have a chat for about half an hour and then we'll throw the floor open to questions from you. Please could you use the Q&A tab. It's usually at the bottom of your screen. Uh, we, we avoid using the chat tab. And so now to Tom. Tom led one of the first Aspen UK ever public conversations on the future of climate change a simple topic, you'll agree. And since it's become one of our most downloaded podcasts, we are delighted to welcome him back. He is a BBC presenter and the author of 39 Ways to Save the Planet. By the way, the book really does show us real world solutions to climate change. And it is it introduces us to the most extraordinary people who are making those change changes happen. As well as writing this dazzling and timely book, he also presents Country File on BBC One and the environment series Costing the Earth on BBC Radio 4. So we're so very glad we have Tom lead this conversation today. Tom, thank you, and over to you. Well, thank you very much indeed, Penny, and it's really, really good to be here. In a funny way, I'm going to skip to the end of the hour, because I hope that by then you will be informed about the kind of choices you can make to help slow down climate change, but perhaps more important than that, how your decisions and your actions could influence the beasts with the really big footprints. And I'm talking about governments, I'm talking about banks, I'm talking about companies, the big actors out there. And in order to do this, the Aspen Institute has really pulled together an A-team of contributors. And so I'm just gonna start by getting a, a little introduction from them and a bit of a thought about what they do so you can get a handle on why they're so potent in this area. Well, first we have Inas Abu Hamid, who is founder and boss of an energy storage company and also widely admired for her uh, knowledge and influence in clean tech circles. Inas, just give me your sub one minute spiel on what the company does. Um, thanks for uh, introducing me and very happy to to be here. Uh, so H2Go Power is a hydrogen storage company. We develop technology uh, in the form of software or hardware to create solutions that are able to store huge amount of hydrogen in small space. These are introduced into markets like drones, 
and energy to decarbonize uh, operations when you're you're increasingly reliant on renewable energy and you don't want any intermittency in your operations and any interruptions. Brilliant, making hydrogen a practical and much more usable fuel. That's a, a real a goal to be wished for. Um, Paul Polman, also here. Paul ran Unilever for 10 years until 2019, transforming that consumer goods giant to be far more sustainable and climate friendly. And he's now written a book called Net Positive. Uh, Paul, welcome. And, and what's the key message of the book? Thank you, Tom. Well, in a nutshell, the key message is really to try to reframe for the private sector what good looks like. Uh, July 29th was World, World Overshoot Day last year when we used up more resources than the world could replenish, we're living well beyond our planetary boundaries. Uh, most companies are in the CSR mode of being less bad, a little bit of carbon reduction, a little bit of plastic reduction, etc. We need to move to regenerative, uh, restorative, reparative, and that is what we call net positive. How companies can profit from solving the world's problems, not creating the world's problems. And that's the essence of the book, as much a leadership transformation as it is a company and systems transformation. That's so potent, less bad, no longer good enough, definitely. Um, we're gonna come on to Samata Pattinson, Pattinson, excuse me, who is a leader in the world of sustainable fashion, running RCGD, which stands for Red Carpet Green Dress. That's now a, a more than a campaign group. It's a whole movement, isn't it, Samata? But you tell me, what do you do? It is. Um, so our campaign or our organisation was founded by Susie and James Cameron the year that they were attending the Oscars for Avatar. And we started as a concept that can the question of what are you wearing become a more meaningful conversation about the impact that the things we wear, how they're made and who they engage has not only on the planet, but also on people. So although we started as a humble design competition, we've grown to include brand collaborations, thought leadership, intelligence reports, and we do a great deal of work on the educational realm as well, working with fashion colleges, universities, and just trying to help people see the role that they can play in the sustainability dialogue. So accessibility is very important to us, as is ensuring that it's a very representative space. That's brilliant. And I'm sorry, I'm still impressed by red carpet glamour and, and movies. So you'll probably get a few <laughs> NAF movie references in the next hour. So please bear with me when those, when those happen. That's um, fine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, Catherine Howarth, who is chief exec of uh, Share Action, which promotes uh, climate-friendly investment and banking. But give me a bit more than that. And, and are you seeing a change in this world? I hear a lot of talk about changing this world. Uh, yes, I. we are seeing a fantastic change. And in a way, it's the flip side of what Paul was talking about. We need to have really ambitious transformational change in the corporate sector. But if that's going to happen, then the institutions that uh, hold shares in those companies and provide loans and financing absolutely need to be on the journey. So what we do at Share Action is um, act like a watchdog on the financial community, driving them to play their part in enabling uh, low carbon transition, but also many other aspects of sustainability. And the way that connects with ordinary people is that, you know, if you have a bank account, if you have a pension fund, then you've got a stake in all of this. And so a lot of what we do is try to ensure that the banking community, um, the big banks and also the pension schemes and asset managers are really tuning in to what their customers want when it comes to sustainability. Because there's a lot of appetite amongst huge numbers of people 
uh, to see the financial community being a bit more ambitious on the climate agenda. Thanks very much to all of you. And, and just to emphasize that I, I really do hope that if, if you want to come in when someone else is talking, uh, either politely interrupt or just put your hand up and, and I'll come in because I, I want to make it as much of a chat as possible. Now, as I said at the start, I think there is a little bit of peril in emphasizing personal action too much. You know, as an individual, we don't control farming policy or whether new areas of the seabed are licensed wind turbines or whether we have nuclear power or build, you know, these kind of things. I, I can't determine whether an oil company invests in carbon capture and storage or prospecting for new oil fields. But I guess we do have power, individual decisions on transport, heating, investment, shopping, eating and investing, as we've just heard. And, and, and these things can add up. So I want to get to feeling of what we can do individually and also how we can kind of punch above our individual weights to influence uh, the, real, uh, the real big playmakers out there. And I was just about to come to her NAS and she's gone completely dark. <laughs> Maybe the lights have gone out. So um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, come to Catherine on this. I mean, first, oh no, Anas is back. Excellent. Uh, Anas, um, this, you... this, this is an action that could answer your question. She was, the lights just turned off for yeah. a. <laughs> it's if you're an save energy, preferably exactly. don't do it right now. Um, <laughs> Maybe after. Maybe later. But Anas, um, give me your framing of how you fit the sort of balance between personal decisions and really what the big players should be doing. How do they fit together? Um, I think it's we need to acknowledge that it's a process that we're all learning to change. Uh, and we haven't done things very similar, like, you know, 10 years ago to the way we're doing them today. And probably we will do them in a very different way in 10 years. So I think that balance is more of a learning, a learning process. Uh, we're really learning on a personal or in whatever capacity on a professional uh, 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 front to be more sustainable with our behavior. If you can go to work and influence uh, decisions that has to do with improving um, sustainability practices at your job, then well, you have that influence and, and you're able to achieve uh, perhaps measurable amplified results. But that doesn't necessarily mean that if you don't have that influence, you can't do much. Uh, the way we act in terms of um, uh, when we go shopping, what we buy, uh, what food we put at the table, uh, what forms of transportation we make decisions to uh, to use to uh, to move ourselves from point A to point B, uh, how many flights we take a year, uh, all these are uh, decisions that we're responsible for as um, individuals, and we can make maybe little uh, impact uh, on individual basis, but if you know, more than 7 billion people did that, that influence will be amplified significantly and it will have a big impact. So I think that there are, there are quite a lot to be done on the personal level as well as on the professional level. I suppose one of my other reasons for slight scepticism in this area, I'll come to Paul about this because you know an awful lot about consumer behaviour, is I got a bit tired of playing a tune that's expecting people to change their behavior and they don't. They still buy compost with peat in it. They still go to restaurants with patio heaters outside that burn even when no one's sitting there. We've seen much many more four by fours being built, being um, bought. Uh, are we right to put so much weight on people changing their personal behaviors? 
Well, there definitely is a higher awareness, Tom, amongst consumers as well, and a desire to change. I mean, people have discovered that they can make differences, and uh, and Nash was pointing out some of them. Uh, for example, uh, electric vehicles last year, um, more electric vehicles sold than the previous uh, five years. You see meat consumption actually going down in the UK, which would have a significant influence. And, and Susie, who is a dear friend and working green dress, obviously, mm -hmm. is a very much with uh, one meal a day. Her book is worth reading how big an impact you can get with that. We see um, uh, probably the most important movement of change is really um, the great resignation when people decide to work for companies or not and increasingly walk out and putting pressure. So there are many different ways that the citizens of this world can have an influence beyond uh, the political environment and etc. However, the, your pertinent question is, is this going to make the biggest difference? I don't think so. I think it really needs to come from uh, working at scale with uh, civil society, uh, governments, as well as the private sector to handle the bigger issues, which are frankly too far removed from the citizens themselves to make a meaningful difference. And as a result, there is a certain level of skepticism, uh, cynicism, uh, a say-do gap that is apparent in many cases when consumers are really wondering if their individual actions make a big difference if the broader system doesn't work for them. You make a very good point about decisions at work, not least leaving work or joining different companies. And I am told that uh, companies are really feeling this, that the best people want to work in areas that, that are making a difference. So that perhaps is a very, very potent personal choice that we have. Just briefly, Paul. Uh, the number one reason now uh, of, of a risk that uh, CEOs see, uh, be it in the um, recent WEF uh, surveys and others, is really talent. Uh, that goes above anything else. If we want to solve these issues, these are issues that need to be solved with people, with courageous leaders, and we're simply short of that. And when you see four and a half million people changing jobs last uh, months in the US, and the same is starting to happen here, when you see that the main reason for millennials or Gen Z generations is to work with companies with a purpose, it ought to send a message to CEOs. And, and, and increasingly, more CEOs get it. Uh, you know, I don't think anymore yeah. we have to debate the um, what we need to do, uh, but where the struggle is, is in the how more than anything. Okay. Uh, Samatha, I just want to return briefly to my slightly sceptical mode. Uh, I've yeah. been making uh, programs about uh, environment and personal choice for quite a few years now. And going back for at least a decade, that has covered, uh, you know, fashion, uh, the garment industry, et cetera, et cetera. There's been a lot of talk about it. And I think a lot of use of sustainability as a way of boosting the image of big brands. Are we seeing a real change in the garment industry as a result of personal choice? Or what do we need to actually achieve that? Yeah, I think uh, to, uh, before I, I just want to kind of uh, contextualize my answer with why I'm saying this. I think one of the dangers of how we've been operating in the sustainability realm is we've been operating in the space of a single story. And when I say that, I mean that we've basically made citizens feel like they're a very 
narrow and specific ways that they can engage in sustainability without taking into consideration the various perspectives and lived experiences of those citizens. A good example is within the sustainable fashion space and it is a busy space. I mean, we contribute some six to 10% to global greenhouse gas emissions. So we are a highly impactful industry. But within that space, what tends to happen is people fall back into the conversation of buy less, choose well, like make it last, therefore excluding people who can't participate because they don't have the disposable income to invest in quality. People will say things like um, they don't kind of consider the fact that we aren't providing solutions for people with different sizes or different abilities, disabled communities. So sustainability as a space definitely needs to allow people to understand that there are various experiences and ways that they can participate in this and all of those ways can be valid. Now with fashion specifically, there is groundswell. I mean, when Susie and I started Red Carpet Green Dress, or when Susie started Red Carpet Green Dress in 2009, the perception of sustainable fashion was very much reliant on a design-based solution. How can we look for materials? How can we look to kind of minimize waste? How can we see the impact of dyes? You know, 20% of global water pollution is textiles. All of these kind of more material and design-based solutions were focused upon. But as we've progressed through the years, we've seen an interest in the social lens of sustainability. And as an organization, we're looking at focusing on social KPIs a great deal more. We've seen the need to talk about um, supply chain injustices and empowering the garment workers and empowering raw material extractors to be able to advocate for themselves. We're seeing that. We've seen there is, sorry to interrupt sorry. you, Samantha. There is there's no doubt that those things are important, but isn't yes. there a risk of slightly diluting, diluting the, the the climate and environment message by bringing all these things onto it as well? Well, it's all interconnected, and I think anybody who doesn't recognise that it's all interconnected doesn't understand sustainability. We can't approach it in an overly siloed way because the same way that um, that climate affects health is the same way that you know. So, for example, we look at the relationship between fashion and climate and we know that you know fashion is a huge contributor and we know that on average the people most kind of sorely affected by that are the people who are often in more disadvantaged positions and are less likely to be able to advocate for themselves we also see a link between climate change and health so the approach of sustainability where we're looking at things in an extremely siloed way is actually I think to our disadvantage and I think the key phrase for us in 2022 is multi-solving and recognizing that it requires cross-pollination it requires us to have conversations across sectors you know we're working with scientists we're working with universities we're working with young minds and we're working with more established minds we're working cross-culturally because we recognize that by being too linear in the way that we're looking for solutions we're ignoring a varied range of voices who have solutions that are credible for the challenges that we're facing so i think we shouldn't underestimate our capacity to take in various inputs and you know create solutions that you know are, are more forward thinking and a generative and actually can have high impact. So I don't think it's a case of diluting it. I think we have to be more aggressive and I think we have to look at collaboration as something that requires us to look at multi-solving at the same time. Thank, thanks for that. Um, uh, Catherine, I, I'm very keen to come to you on, on the world of finance because I have to confess that unlike I mentioned with fashion, um, finance is something that I think we've rather underplayed. In the, in the environment uh, community. And we haven't perhaps looked enough at what individuals could be doing in the world of, of, of finance and banking, as I say. Um, and, and people are now saying it is a very, very big lever that individuals could be pulling. Yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. That's the, the basis of all of our work, that um, the role of finance is utterly critical to the climate outcomes we're going to get. 
that uh, unless we have banks on side, unless we have asset managers using the shareholder power and the shareholder rights that they have to encourage companies in every sector, including the fashion sector, including the, you know, the retail sector, the food sector, the investment industry has a hand in all of them and can be using the influence it has uh, to drive um, the agenda in a really positive way. So very exciting that at the COP26 conference in Glasgow a couple of months ago, uh, there was this amazing um, gathering of financial sector leaders making pledges left, right and centre. And um, the former governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, had spent a year and a half running all over the world, pulling together the leaders, chief executives and boards of of the largest financial institutions across the world to say, you must step up, you've got to collaborate. So that was really positive. Some really great uh, pledging took place. But um, three months on, what about the, the issue that you raised of greenwash is one that's alive and well in the uh, financial community as much as in any other part of uh, the business community. And um, it's very, very important that people make sure and, and chip into contributing to ensuring that institutions that have made pledges and commitments come good on them um, so that's all lying ahead and I, I i i think it can happen but it does need that scrutiny and and the great thing about the financial community is that we all have a stake in it so this really is where individual action meets kind of acting at scale because if you can make sure that you're and you know nudge them and ring them up and make sure your bank has a net zero commitment and is really using its influence to ensure that the companies in all the different sectors that it finances what, what, what are on their journey, that will actually, really scale your impact as an individual. Catherine, just simply, a lot of people might watch this, what should they actually ring their bank and ask? You know, what are the three things to ask, let's say? Well, one of the key things, very pragmatically, is what are your financing policies for coal, oil and gas? So, as in, do, uh, you, do you finance Absolutely. So, you know, what we know from the International Energy Agency is that if we're going to achieve a 1.5 degrees climate outcome and not burst above that threshold, there is literally no more room in the world's carbon budget for additional exploration and expansion of the coal, oil and gas sector. But banks, including banks that have um, you know, made pledges at, 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 in Glasgow, still want to finance those deals because actually there's a lot of profit in the short term. Uh, in fact, the coal, oil and gas pricing has, has shot up in the last few months. So there's a real tension um, between the short term and the long term here. One that can be, you know, banks need their shareholders and their customers leaning on them to do the right thing and to come good on their pledges. So it's very practical is that, you know, make sure your pension fund, you, you, you've, you've nudged them that they've got a really ambitious policy and your bank as well. And I want to go to Inas, because Inas, presumably you've been looking for finance uh, at times. You, you're a young company that's looking for backing. Are you finding that the financial institutions are prepared to offer uh, companies like yours, you know, potentially invented something really important? Are you getting the investment you need? Is that is that climate changing? Um, I, I don't know if my, my experience clash uh, here, but I... I it, like from talking to banks, um, we, we don't fit the risk profile. We're a technology company. A lot of the activities in the company are uh, around 
developing technology that doesn't exist, scaling technology that nobody else scaled before. So that doesn't fit the risk profile of... Sorry to cut the jargon, does that mean it's difficult to get the money? <laughs> that means that, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it's, there, there are other funders, but not, not banks or financial institutions who look at metric that uh, focus mostly on, um, you know, how can you make returns uh, within a short period of time, regardless. So how, do you feel, how do you feel about that, given that we're all hold, hearing that, you know, banking and finance is, you know, definitely the money is supposed to be chasing the good things, not the bad things? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think um, with with regards to talking about like how financial institutions work in terms of risk assess- risk assessment, I am not the best person to uh, to, to talk about their um, uh, thesis in terms of what is it that they invest in and what is it that they that they don't. But our risk is very high, and risk appetite for uh, financial institutions is quite low despite the fact that, you know, if you mark us on climate change solution uh, or leadership or doing um, good, uh, reducing carbon significantly with technology, we mark very high. Uh, But that comes with the level of risk that the appetite for it in financial institutions isn't very high. Uh, We have financial backers, uh, but... uh, but they are special. Mm-hmm. Catherine, did I see a little wave there? Did you want to come yes, in? Yes, I just I think it's just such an interesting example because uh, Anas is completely right that uh, whilst there's this kind of talk about um, as banks um, we're going we're really committed to the transition, but then they look at a kind of a young company that's trying to do something kind of pioneering and new. And they get the wobblies, they get really nervous and think, you know, God, crikey, is this risk profile not one that we, you know, like in old fashioned banking. So banking, this is part of the trans- transformation that's needed, um, which Paul has spoken to. Um, it, it, and ultimately, we, by the way, we need kind of financial regulation that enables um, banks to look at climate considerations alongside traditional financial metrics uh, so that we can put our money to to, to, to good use on the transition with, you know, amazing pioneering companies like the one that Anas is running. Okay, I, I want to come quickly to Anas or something and then to the other two, but Anas, you, you, are, you are an inventor. Uh, you're one of these people that's coming up with technological solutions to this problem. How do you see the sort of balance between whether in, in effect uh, uh, geniuses like you will get us out of this problem or will it be about behaviour? Sorry, I didn't. I didn't hear the last part of your question. Yeah, you yeah sure. Um, I'm wondering how much that you think technological fixes, of which you are delivering one, how much geniuses like you will save us from this problem, or how much it will be down to individual changes of behaviour when it comes to sorting climate change. Uh, well, thank you very much for <laughs> for referring me <laughs> as a, to me as a genius. But I think that a lot of the big inventions that transformed our world. Uh, are uh, technological breakthroughs that were scaled uh, appropriately and met demand at the right time. Uh, So they were needed and they actually uh, forced uh, a lot of users to use them uh, because of the need and the the demand. So I think that sometimes you can be very clever, but you miss uh, with an invention, you miss on making an impact because you don't do the the, the timely thing that could impact users. 
and sometimes you get that right. And that that balance is very difficult statistically to uh, uh, to strike. It doesn't always happen that the greatest invention uh, hit home, uh, and it doesn't always happen that you know if I can name a few uh, games, for example, that have billions of users in terms of, I, I can't say that the inventor is a genius or the impact of these invention is, is remarkable, but the, the users are in billions. So um, the, that balance is a very difficult uh, one to talk about, like statistically of what drives it and how can we achieve it. But what I can say is that when you have urgency like climate change, inventions are your savior. So you do need to put your money uh, behind backing inventions that are needed where you don't have um, solutions. And your users will learn and will become responsible because they live in an urgent, like a situation of urgency where they need to change their behavior. And that match, I think, is happening. And maybe in 10 years time, you will be able to see results that are quantitative um, and improvements, hopefully. I am very positive about that. Uh, Paul Pullman, one of the things that strikes me is that business as usual has extraordinary gravity. It sort of pulls people back to where they always were and that you need kind of an exceptional power to escape the pull of that. Now, we saw a little bit of that maybe around COP26, but as we get further from there, do you see this real appetite for change in business or is the gravity pulling us back to, to business as usual where the, the current ecosystem makes money? Well, there is no doubt that what we saw in, Paris, in uh, Glasgow, where I was myself for uh, 10 days, was quite remarkable in many respects. The responsible part of business actually pulling governments into higher ambitions. But uh, whilst Glasgow had a lot of good things we can be proud of, with the uh, projected uh, 2.4 degrees, uh, we are still far from the one and a half degrees. And as you well know, it's an exponential problem. The challenge here is not the few companies that we keep celebrating, but to change the systems at scale. Most CEOs now know what needs to be done. They don't want more climate change or inequity or, or air pollution if you want to. But it's very difficult for companies alone to change things. And increasingly, we need to forge these broader partnerships Increasingly, we need to work together with governments to have regulations that don't push you in the wrong direction, but the right direction. Even today, we have 500 billion of per first subsidies in, in energy that's, that stimulate fossil fuel. Behind the build back better after COVID, half the spending went to the brown industry still. Even today, we have many policies on the books, like the European agriculture policy that pushes you actually towards the direction of, of deforestation, if you want to. And, and makes regenerative agriculture un, uh, unattractive. So we need to work together now at a different scale. Uh, it's not anymore an issue about what needs to be done. It's an issue of how do we do it within the time frame that we have, which frankly is only eight years, which brings me to the financial institutions. Here again, many are moving because very simply, they see an economic opportunity. I don't think the financial market is really moved on, on morality but uh, when they start seeing that the cost of not acting is higher than the cost of acting, it becomes an attractive business opportunity. You saw the ESG funds outperforming their, their peer funds. You saw increasingly the green bond market developing. An enormous amount, by the way, of, of uh, money moving into uh, startup funds on, on green energy. All that stuff is happening. 
but we're celebrating progress whilst we really should be celebrating step change. Now, where does step change come from? It actually comes from courageous leadership. Too many companies still set targets that they can get away with versus targets that we really need in this world. Uh, scope one and two examples, 2050 targets. When we really need scope one, two and three, 2030 targets. Uh, it takes courage to work together with others because there might be some inconvenient truths. It is hard work to work together with governments. And that's these are the okay. kind of coalitions that we're trying to put together to move forward at the speed that we need. I want to ask you a bit about what may be an inconvenient truth that refers very much to a consumer sink, something choices we all make. Uh, I've seen you say in a speech that the real cost of food is two to three times what we actually pay. Correct. Do shoppers, consumers need to grow up and realise that if they're going to get food that doesn't have an environmental footprint, it's going to cost more? No, that's, that would be too quick a, a conclusion, Tom, to draw that. Where are the costs of deforestation, of, of keeping people in poverty, of climate change, of uh, degraded land that we're seeing, of, of stunting, we're not giving enough nutrition, of obesity on the other side, where you have the healthcare cost of diabetes too becoming the biggest uh, epidemic. I would argue even that COVID, a zoonotic disease, uh, like um, Ebola, Zika, SARS, shouldn't have been a surprise, by the way, is a direct result of our destruction of biodiversity. And the bulk of that is coming from the way we produce food. And yet we are paying for that already today, one way or another. But we're not paying for it in the price of food. We're paying for it in a lot of other things. We're paying it in the price of food, but why not avoid it in the first place so you don't have to pay it? The cost that society currently incurs in our food system is over $12 trillion. Mm. The implementation of all the sustainable development goals is three to $5 trillion a year. We're at the point that the cost of not acting is higher than the cost of acting. Why don't we design systems together that are right? It's not, you don't solve it by having people pay twice as much for food and continuing to do the wrong things. We are beyond that. We're beyond the uh, planetary boundaries, this infinite consumption, this linear production model. Actually, also beyond keeping too many people in poverty, we have to change the way we're doing things. That doesn't necessarily result in more expensive food. It results in better food, more nutritious food, and hopefully a better uh, protection of our biodiversity. I would argue, argue actually restoration of our biodiversity. Samatha, I wanted to come to you on something that, that the, uh, the clothing industry, I think, is, is particularly vulnerable to, but it applies to consumerism throughout we're kind of addicted to novelty mm -hmm. uh, and I, I, I heard of, of someone in the consumer fashion world talking about this a, a couple of months ago she'd come up with a, a brilliant way of, of, of dressing toddlers in clothes that basically lasted for a long time and mm -hmm. then the sort of fashion magazines you know who did a big spread on her came to see her the next year and said so what are you doing now what's yeah. new and she said well you haven't really got the point <laughs> you know yeah. isn't that an issue that there is a sort of addiction to novelty here that's driven, people might argue, by the market force. It is, but there's also, we kind of kind of underestimate the, you know, the psychology of fashion. And I think as an industry, fashion does kind of thrive on making people feel like there's something they need that they don't have, or they will be <laughs> something else when they purchase this thing. So the psychology of fashion is always fascinating to me. But I think there's, there's a wider conversation at play here, which to me is around kind of perception and perspective, which is what a few of the earlier comments have alluded to me. 
And I think when we look at fashion, I think we have to recognize that we don't all have the same value systems. And with fashion, a lot of what we've been seeing is a focus on product-based revenue. And we haven't recognized the need to evolve and really divest from this kind of raw material extraction model and look at services. And the reason that I think that products and services approach is so crucial is because when you bring in services and we're talking from a fashion perspective of things like cobblers and artisans and seamstresses, you start helping people understand that people things that the things that we wear and the things that we produce come from someone they come from someone's craft they come from someone's skill set and so when we start engaging with this idea of allowing our citizens to go and buy something yes but also giving them the service where that item can be mended and they can have a relationship where they see that process happening then this whole perception of value can start to shift slightly and then we're kind of not forcing the replication of this broken model. The And the thing I recognize and, and see why we don't understand value properly is when I look at the conversation around circularity, for example, what people are doing with the conversation around circularity is using it as an excuse to make more things. So, okay, if we just design a really great product and we use recycled X and repurposed Y, then we can just make loads of this thing. And so it's, they've clearly missed the point. And so it's become like a secondary revenue stream. So again, because we don't have have the fundamental view and we don't understand that we are looking to reduce what we're making and we're looking to value the things we already have and we're looking to build systems that allow us and teach us how to value the things that we already have i always give the example especially with clothing that we aren't even educating well on our labels people don't understand how to wash things how to make them last and as a result i think companies are getting away with design obsolescence they're getting away with producing things that they aren't educating their citizens on how to interact with they therefore fall apart quickly and hey we're back in at the shops so Novel is okay. part of the problem, but so is, I think, kind of substandard goods. That's also part of the problem, and that's part of what we should also be holding companies accountable to, that we so should be making got, things better. I want to stay with you because I've got a nice question from uh, one of our one of our panellists here. Mm -hmm. A question for Samata from Rachel Stevens. She says, demand for luxury goods have just reached an all-time high. This mm -hmm. means the industry's footprint is becoming worse. Mm -hmm. What can we do to persuade the top fashion houses to do more? I think that there's part of what can we do to persuade and I think that whole C to B communications is something we've been talking a lot about at kind of RCGD and just seeing the rising voices of our citizens and how the more educated, the more empowered citizens have the right questions to ask. And there is some fear rising within these luxury brands about not being prepared and not actually having the answers for these questions. And I think although that's not the right impetus, I'm fine with that if it's pushing change. But on the other hand, I don't think that we're in the space right now where we can continue to just wait for companies to step up and say, we'll do things differently, which is why legislation is something that I think is key. Up until this point, we have been allowing brands to mark their own homework and give themselves A's. And I think we've reached a point now where we're at a critical juncture. We do need acceleration. And so legislation is kind of the next step. To, to, do, really to do what? Sorry, I know this is a very big mm -hmm. question, but legislation would say what sort of thing? Yeah, so for example, one of the kind of more exciting pieces of legislation that we've seen is like the Fashion Sustainability and Social Accountability Act. And what it's basically doing is looking to hold the biggest brands in fashion accountable for their role in climate change. And they're doing that by basically requiring brands to map out, I think, a minimum of 50% of their supply chain, starting from the farms and fields where we extract our clothes from 
from trees and you know this is where our clothes come they come from farms and fields and then it's starting there and it's kind of looking across their factories and their shipping requiring them to disclose like in that chain or in that space you know what is the impact socially and environmentally like and also step up and communicate about wages greenhouse gas emissions chemical and water management all of these really really important okay. things we want concrete numbers for them but wait right. the thing i think is important about this story is that given a time to comply which i think is around 12 months and if they are found to not be in violation of this specific law then they're looking at a fine of up to two percent of their annual revenue so these are the kind of things we want, which okay. means companies need to have metric systems to be able to track this data and to yep. be able what's, to deliver it when asked. What's measurable could become important. Um, yes. Uh, I think we, we, we treasure what we measure. It's a quote I've nicked from Paul. Um, and you had your <laughs> hand up a moment, uh, uh, Paul. No, what I wanted to say on fashion is it's actually the luxury brands that drive the sustainable innovation because they can afford it. And Agreed. it's only a very small part of the market. So okay. they are the ones that come with mushroom technology to replace leather, for example, or traceability. They can also afford better labor standards. The real issue is fast fashion, where we have 52 seasons and yeah. where people have increasingly more clothes at home. Sort of, it's cool to have a $1 t-shirt. Nobody asked themselves a question why that is the case. Mm -hmm. So we have created the fashion pact with one of my foundations called Imagine, where we brought now 80 fashion companies together and together they're working on buying green energy. They're just too small to do it alone. Together are bringing in science-based targets for nature, working with the Nature uh, Conservation International. Uh, together, they're actually moving to regenerative cotton. Increasingly, you need to forge these partnerships to drive these broader industry changes. The consumer honestly cannot do that. Consumers are hurting in many countries. They have to count every penny they have. Sure, they want to have a better wealth, but they're more worried about their own jobs and food on the plate on Friday than anything else right now. And COVID hasn't really helped. So let's do the work for them. Let's be sure that these industry leaders, these captains of industry come together and drive these broader changes before it's imposed upon them and that won't be pretty. Yeah. Um, I've got a very specific question for you, Anas, uh, from a Colin Megson, uh, who asked, does Anas agree that green hydrogen is as green if manufactured from nuclear power, i.e. using, I guess, the nuclear power to do electrolysis to create hydrogen? Um, is it as green if it comes from nuclear power as if it comes from uh, renewables like wind and solar? Uh, so they, they call it pink. So it's, it's not as green. God, we're really getting a rainbow here uh, in, in terms of hydrogen. I've heard of gold, blue, green, now pink. Very good. Uh, gray, brown. Okay, uh, you could go on. Is nuclear hydrogen as, as, as climate friendly as renewable? Um, I think that when you're able to um, um, drop it, I mean, I'm just answering this question from, at this, from my own perspective, and this is my own opinion. If you're able to get the price of green hydrogen down using renewable energy, you're building an entire supply chain that could have a lot of value in the generation industry um, uh, and could impact many industries on the way. So it's not only just uh, the power. Uh, I think that green hydrogen uh, should be really our focus uh, and it could be greener. Uh, it depends on how much power you want to, or how much investment you want to put behind nuclear. Uh, there are implications that are not 
necessarily very environmental to uh, backing many, many nuclear uh, uh, projects around the world. Uh, if we take that into account, uh, I, I am not sure that this is the way forward. So in my opinion, uh, increased dependency on uh, renewable energy where you could generate green hydrogen, uh, especially if you can drive the cost down and build supply chain uh, properly is a, a more appropriate way to push that industry. I think we're going to have another whole Aspen on the various virtues of different uh, hydrogen uh, generation technologies. So we probably better, better leave that there. Now, we've got a specific one about finance uh, from a Margaret Heffernan, who says, I work with private equity companies, many of whose leaders want to do the right thing, but they don't know where to start. Uh, may, what should they do? Um, and there's a, there's a sort of sub question of do they just disinvest in coal, oil or gas? Catherine. Oof. What should we do? Uh, well, it's it's a good, the whole role of private equity that that question has been sort of bubbling up because uh, a lot of the uh, listed publicly listed fossil fuel companies are selling assets into private equity sector where uh, it's you know the, the thinking is maybe there's a bit less scrutiny of what goes on in that sector. So the whole question of how does the private equity sector do sustainability? is really, really topical and really key. Um, but I don't think what that sector does should be any different from what uh, other big companies have to do. Um, I'm very keen on, we talked about treasuring what you measure and public uh, reporting by companies being a, a very important part of what's needed to create the uh, climate for transition. In the private equity space, companies are under very minimal obligations to publicly report. Um, and I think that should change because some of the private equity companies are huge firms. I think they, they in terms of their footprint and their impact on the world, uh, they're just as significant as equivalently sized um, publicly listed companies. So I think a great place to start is with reporting and disclosure. Uh, and that's where I would begin the journey in terms of uh, the private equity industry. Uh, and by the way, going to Samata's point on regulation and legislation, this is very much in the air. So there's a, a, a kind of exciting new global framework um, of corporate sustainability reporting in the offing. And personally, I think it's vital that private equity companies over a certain size would have to report just the same uh, way as public companies. And then we'll have a level playing field for transparency at least. Hey, yeah, Paul. Uh... No, I think uh, increasingly you see the LPs that provide the funding for private equity, not asking anymore just the risk return. The, the what, sorry, you see the... They're not asking just for uh, risk and return in their equations to make decisions, but increasingly they're looking for impact and um, to attract the funding in private equity, which by the way is a bigger industry is private than public now in this world. Regretfully, I have to say, but that's the reality. So um, these these LPs that provide the funding want to- I'm so the, sorry, LPs, you have to sort of help me out there. The investors that provide the funding to the private equities to do what they want to do. But what are LPs? Well, it's the, the limited partners they're called, but Thank they're- Thank you, sorry, jargon. <laughs> And they want to be sure that that is done in a responsible way, because people like you and me that provide them the funding are basically telling them that. More importantly, 
these private equity companies need to exit five, six, seven years from now, and the world is going to look drastically different. This is an exponential issue that we're dealing with, and the smart ones amongst them, like the uh, EQTs, the generations, the rice funds, they're starting to position themselves in these companies in the future to have successful exits. I do agree that uh, the playing field needs to be leveled with the rest of the industry, but anybody that is smart in the private equity industry is starting to embrace this new trend as much as anybody else. Yeah. Paul, Paul, can I just add something just, quickly? Just very briefly, if you would, Samantha, yeah. Yeah, please, just really quickly, because I do want to just say that for us, a lot of the conversation is heavily focused on environmental KPIs as a form of measuring impact. And we do strongly believe that the social KPI conversation really does need to take kind of greater precedent. And that's across human resources from forced and um, bonded labor across to community impact, where we're talking about engaging with indigenous wisdom, but also protecting that wisdom um, giving ensuring that there's consent and that's when we get into the conversation of things like geographical indicators. So when we talk about kind of um, finance and, and impact, we want to make sure with the work that we do that those social KPIs, which have people at the heart of them, are not um, undervalued or underestimated because we think they are really, really important for the kind of sustainable future that we're trying to build. And for those of you who are wondering, KPIs, key performance indicators. Yes, sorry. Uh, um, I... I, I, I Something I'm interested uh, to hear from you, Anas, that isn't actually directly about your technology, but something I've heard you talk about is that one of the biggest things we can do as individuals is be peers that influence our friends and our peer group on choices. I wonder if you could talk a bit more about that, how one, one of the things we can do is influence others. Uh, yeah, and uh, this is a good point that applies to people who can be decision makers. So imagine if uh, Paul came up with an idea that could transform uh, Unilever's employees' uh, behavior and, you know, cut carbon annually um, uh, in a significant way. And he would tell his friends who are CEOs about that and they could do the same. See how far that influence could, could, could go. Uh, it could be, this is one side to like measuring uh, how influential, how influential, or how far we can go if we came up with ideas and we influenced our circle. Uh, you know, we we drag each other to the pub and influence each other with making decisions. Of let's have one more beer, even even when we know that we have a a business meeting or an interview um, the next day early. We do that, but we can also do that when we adapt practices that has a lot of value in terms of if we changed one thing, one act. Uh, I learn here at work from uh, our employees a lot of practices that I didn't know much about before, but I adopt them and it, it changes. So uh, for example, uh, one of our employees, he does vegan weeks. He's not vegan. Uh, but uh, um, I started to do that uh, or like I learned a lot from him about recycling uh, and I started to implement that at home. Uh, and then I talk about that to our friends and uh, our friends as well, like, you know, uh, uh, do things very similarly because they think, oh, we can do that as well. It's, it's you know, it, it makes sense. We all can do things like that uh, through our small circles, but see what happens when we all join Facebook right? It ended up a very big platform. We could do that as well. 
with the other practices and we can get you know uh, billions of people changing their behavior measurable impact even if it's very very small practices through just influencing our social uh, network so don't be afraid about talking excitedly about the, the things that you're maybe doing in this space mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess that's what you're saying whilst avoiding sounding a bit preachy and holier than thou which is always <laughs> <a bit>. <laughs> <laughs> my, my favorite on that is buy secondhand clothes I am in this really lovely secondhand sweater that I got very recently. And I just think we should, that's just a little example. Um, We need to completely, um, there's so many clothes. As Paul said, there's just ridiculous number of clothes in the world. It's more than enough for us all to have. We could be swapping about and you can still have a, you know, an experience of, Wearing something new, but it doesn't have to be new. Well, there is a real boom in that kind of app, isn't there, Samato? There, there is. Well. There is. But I wanted to say something that um, is about the cultural perspective I was speaking about before. And, um, and it's that we aren't inventing anything new. And in fact, there are communities around the globe that have been practicing sustainability this way without expecting fanfare. There are communities where they've been sharing clothes intergenerationally. There are communities where they've been darning and mending, who've been passing down heirlooms. And this is just focusing on clothing specifically. And I think that's when I spoke earlier about the need to just broaden our perspective a bit and look at cultural sustainability a bit more because these same communities are existing and not being recognized for their, the way that they exist, which is incredibly sustainable. And so we can definitely learn across boundaries and across cultures. And I agree, there are far too many clothes. Um, at the same time, I think uh, when we talked about secondhand and, and thrifting and vintage, those kind of facts are important. I know that it can be easy to feel pessimistic and say that I can't have impact, but we already know that if you hold on to a garment for just another year, you're reducing your carbon waste and water footprint by 20 to 30% respectively and I think people just feel demotivated because they think they're a drop in an ocean and can't have any impact and we have to just keep challenging that narrative I think as Anas said and say that you know you can have an impact and the impact you have in your community is one that will spread further out okay. um, that that I think is really uh, just something I wanted to add on um yeah as well. sorry Samara I've got a few things and we're getting very close okay. to the end I just wanted to, to, to come to Paul very briefly there's an anonymous attendee here who says <laughs> Does he think there should be a special place in hell for some of his former captain of industry friends? Perhaps not surprising that they're anonymous, this person. But um, goes on to make a... a, a, well, let, me a, a because, let me answer that, actually, because the question is more serious. There are some people that, indeed, it is at the point that you have to take personal responsibility. Governments increasingly are starting to internalize these negative externalities on companies. What... Uh, because at the end of the day, captains of industry or not, they're all human beings. And like in politics, like in NGOs, like in others, there are good people and there are bad people. And, and bad people should be dealt with and be called out. So, And, and I actually actively do that if you follow, good. If you follow my Twitter. I have and also, a comment. Oh, sorry, just on the calling out points, it relates to the question. Is there, uh, I need a quick answer on this. In, in identifying greenwash, is there a sort of simple test that we can apply, Paul? Oh, I think on greenwash, you, um, which is obviously there, and I think the simple test is really, uh, you, you know, the employees. The gap between, um, again, once more, what some companies are trying to say mm-hmm. and commitments they make out there and what they actually do is significantly bigger between what the CEO says and what the employees feel. And I think you just have to measure that. Some of that you can go to um, Glassdoor and see it. But right. some of these things uh, are coming out. I want to make one final comment because... Very it's really, brief, please. 
really this is a crisis not of climate change or inequality or food security this is a crisis of greed of apathy of selfishness mm -hmm. and the most important thing uh, coming back to samantha is that we increase our own level of consciousness mm -hmm. that we move increasingly from competitive uh, behavior to collaborative behavior and that requires okay. a different type of leadership and that's what we need to focus on Thank you very much. I just want a quick uh, round. Of, I'll take that as the, the single thing from Paul. Uh, but Catherine, what is the single individual action that people could take you think would be most impactful or, or, or straightforward? Very briefly, Catherine. Please. Just make sure that your pension fund is, a, is, is investing for a 1.5 degrees climate outcome. Thank you very much. Same questions you and asked. What's the sort of single thing you'd like to see people doing? Um maybe like think about what they do that they would like to change and change it. There isn't a single thing that I would ask people to change. But find out something that they're, that they're passionate about and make a small change though, or make yeah. a big one. And uh, same question to you, Samata. What is this? Um, you, you said one about keep your clothing for a year longer, maybe. Is there <laughs> another one you could hit us with? I would say um, just interpret sustainability through your own lens and, and do what is literally, do what's feasible for you, do what is possible for you um, and make it something that is hopefully a joyful and creative pursuit. We don't talk about sustainability in enough positive ways, but to me that creativity and problem solving is part of what's exciting about it. So do what you can, but try and find joy in what you're doing. <laughs> do something. Thank you very much to uh, Samata and Nas. Uh, Catherine and Paul, great conversation, could have gone on for longer. Penny's back. Could have gone on so much longer. I, I feel like a bit of a killjoy asking you to wrap it up, but thank you so much. That really was a great guide for us. Lots of prompts, especially at the end. Thank you so much about how to help us punch above our individual weight, as Tom mentioned right at the beginning. And it was, to carry on another analogy, it was it really was a, a true rainbow of issues, very colourful and very constructive. Thank you, Paul. It was disappointing to hear use words greed apathy and selfishness but i hope that they are strong enough to to push a lot more of us into action this has been the last in the present series of critical conversations on climate change with credit space and you can catch up in the last conversations and this one soon on the aspen uk podcast but for now and as Catherine, smatter and paul and of course tom really my really huge thanks for a conversation that we we needed to have and, and we're really glad that you led us through it thank you